Boys and girls, I'm quite sure that your moms and dads have talked to you about the necessity of having a new heart. So when you hear that, when you hear your mom and dad talk about a new heart, I wonder what goes through your mind. When I was little, I didn't quite understand what that meant, a new heart. Now, you understand, of course, the older ones, that we're not talking about this physical heart that beats inside of our breast. That heart we need in order for our bodies to function. We can't live without a beating and functioning heart. But as you know, boys and girls, we don't just have a body. We also have a soul. And just like our physical bodies have a physical heart, so our soul has a spiritual heart. And just like our whole life depends on the functioning of our physical heart, so our soul, the functioning of our soul, very much depends on the functioning of that physical heart, or that spiritual heart, rather. And so when we talk about the soul, that spiritual aspect of our being, then we distinguish between three faculties, three faculties that function. We talk about our mind, our understanding, our affections, how we feel, how we respond emotionally, and our will. And those three faculties, they interact together in what we call our heart. And so God created us with those three faculties in order that with our mind we would know Him, that with our affections we would love Him, and that with our will we would serve Him. And sadly, when Adam and Eve fell and we in Him, that spiritual heart where those three faculties intersect, where they interact together, those three faculties have become utterly corrupt. And so now we have an evil heart. Now the Bible tells us that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so rather than with our minds knowing God, we are now ignorant of God. And we only care about ourselves. Rather than our affections being directed towards God, we now love ourselves. As sinners, we utterly love ourselves. And rather than our will functioning in obedience to the will of God, we are now bent unto our own will. Such is the evil and corrupt heart of man. But when the grace of God gets a hold of us, when the Spirit of God, when He quickens us, when He makes us spiritually alive, He gives us a new heart. And then that new heart again begins to function according to God's original intent when He created us. So when we have a new heart... How does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in that there is now a desire to know our Maker. There is a longing to love Him. And there's a desire to please Him and to obey Him. Those are the evidences of a new heart. And remarkably, Christ begins His famous Sermon on the Mount by giving us a description of what such a new creature looks like, what that new heart looks like. And he begins in a very positive way. He begins by pronouncing a sevenfold blessing upon those who have these characteristics that he outlines for us in the Beatitudes. That's why I have referred to it as Christ's perfect, because the number seven is the number of perfection, Christ's 
perfect portrait of the citizens of his kingdom. Or to put it very simply, Christ's description of what a true believer looks like, Christ's description of what it means to be a living soul, to be spiritually alive. And I want to emphasize again, that when that amazing miracle happens in our hearts and lives, that from that very moment, all seven of these marks begin to function. It's a package that belongs together. They belong inseparably together. And even though there is an order in which Christ described them for us, and we will see again today how, how significant that order is, how there is a certain sequence, how there is, a, in a way, a cumulative effect, how each beatitude builds on the previous one and anticipates the next one, yet we must view them as one whole entity. And so let me just emphasize, especially for the older ones among us, the order of the beatitudes is not a chronological one. So we should not view them as first you become poor in spirit, and then later you begin to mourn, and then you become meek, and then somewhere down the road you begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's not Christ's intent. No, this is a package, and these graces are wrought the moment the Spirit makes us alive. And so when we become spiritually alive, we begin to realize how poor and bankrupt we are. When we, when we become spiritually alive, we begin to mourn, we become meek, we begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We become merciful. We become pure in heart. We become peacemakers. And so we have begun to look at these individual marks. And last week we saw that Christ significantly establishes as the foundational mark of all the other marks on which all the other marks, if you will, they're all built on that foundation. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Supremely happy are the poor in spirit. That alone as I pointed out, that alone would have gotten the attention of his audience because that ran directly contrary to what they had been taught by the scribes and Pharisees. And even to us, it seems like a paradox. How can you declare someone supremely happy who is poor in spirit, who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy, who recognizes his true state before God? And that's where we see how all of this belongs together. Because, you see, those that recognize that spiritual poverty, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, who recognize what it means to be a sinner, they, and they alone, will be the ones who will take refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the ones who will come to Him Later, laboring and heavy laden, who will come to him and who will hunger and thirst after his righteousness. And they will experience that amazing blessing of being filled with the love and the favor and the mercy of God to overflowing. And that, my friends, is real happiness. And that's why Jesus declares happy those who are awakened to their true spiritual condition. That's what that means. That's why it is the entrance requirement, if you will, into the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are the citizens of my kingdom, they know themselves who they are in the sight of God. They understand their true spiritual plight. As I pointed out last week, we are all spiritually poor. But that's not what Jesus says. He does not say, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. 
We all are. But by nature, we are blind to that reality. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have been awakened spiritually, who now begin to see themselves the way God sees them. But that's why the next beatitude is so significant in connection with this beatitude. Because you see, that awareness and the confession that I am poor in spirit, the confession that I am bankrupt before God, the confession that I am utterly undone before God, the recognition that even my righteousnesses, even my very best works are as filthy rags in God's sight, does not stand on its own. Because there we see that that which we know spiritually, when we, get, when we become acquainted with our spiritual state, that which we know engages our affections. Because the next beatitude says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And next week we will see that when we know we are sinners, when we mourn the fact that we are sinners, it then impacts our will. And blessed are the meek, those who humble themselves before God. And so even here, in those three opening Beatitudes, in that, in that inner disposition, that's what Christ is describing. That's why I said the order is not chronologically. This is all simultaneously true. This is that inner disposition of the heart, of our thinking, of our affections, and our will, which results in that central beatitude. Boys and girls, remember the picture that I used of that of one of those old-fashioned wheels with those spokes, and you have a big axle in the middle. And all those spokes, they connect by means of that axle. And so that fourth beatitude, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, that's the axle. That's the axle around which all of spiritual life revolves. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled out of the fullness of Christ. And all those spokes come together and it's one wheel. But now this morning, let's look at that second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And ultimately, our points with each beatitude will be very similar. First of all, the nature of this mourning. Secondly, the blessedness of this mourning. And thirdly, the comfort that is promised to these mourners, for they shall be comforted. You will see with each beatitude, it always consists of two components— so Christ says something about who we are, about our state of being. Blessed are, not blessed were, but blessed are. And again, I want to emphasize this is present tense. This is always true in the life of the believer. Not just in the beginning. This is always true. So he describes who we are. Then what the rich benefits are that are connected to that state of being. So in this beatitude... Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, congregation, we could call this mourning the emotional response to an experiential awareness of sin. Let me say that again. The emotional response to an experiential awareness of sin. Sin, which the true believer sees in all of its vileness, sin which the believer sees in all of its ugliness. And that causes the true believer to mourn over sin, not just to confess it, but to mourn over it, to grieve over it. In Psalm 69, 29, those two beatitudes are connected when the psalmist says, but I am poor and sorrowful. There you have it. I am poor and sorrowful. Those two belong inseparably together. 
And what is true of the first beatitude and of all the other beatitudes, none of these marks are ever found naturally in men. Christ is not describing certain personalities. All of these marks will always be the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. So what Christ is saying here that there is no such thing as knowing your sin and not mourning over it. But also in reverse, there is no such thing as mourning without knowing why we are mourning. And so the citizen of God's kingdom, the true believer, they know why they are mourning. Their subjective response, if you will, their subjective response is a response to the objective truth of Scripture about God and themselves. And that objective truth about God and who they are results in a subjective response. It results in a mourning over sin. Matthew Henry has a beautiful statement. He says this. He says, the graciously poor mourn graciously. Let me say that again. The graciously poor mourn graciously. I also want you to understand, it does not say blessed are those that weep. It doesn't say that. In other words, Christ is not necessarily talking about physical tears here. Because sometimes people can weep. And some, some of us have a much more emotional disposition than others. Some of us are moved very quickly to tears, and others are not. Christ is not talking about physical tears. He is talking about a state of the heart that may manifest itself at times in physical tears, but not always and not necessarily so. Why do I emphasize this? It's because there have always been people who deceive themselves into thinking that because they shed physical tears, that that is the work of God's grace. It may be so, but not necessarily so. Now, what's also enlightening is that just as Christ carefully selected the word poor to describe not general poverty, but a state of being utterly destitute, so again, he selects a word here carefully. Because sometimes this beatitude is taken out of its context. And it's used at funerals. It's placed on obituaries. As if Christ is here saying, when you are mourning, you will be comforted. No, we're not talking about a worldly kind of mourning. No, this is spiritual grieving. This is a spiritual distinctive. But what's, what's enlightening is that the word he chooses describes not just mourning in general, but the mourning of someone who is bringing a loved one to the grave. In other words, it's a mourning that is an expression of love. You, when you go to a funeral, it's usually very quiet. It's a very subdued atmosphere. In a sense, everybody there is mourning. But no one is mourning like the family. No one is mourning like the loved ones. They are mourning. Their mourning is fueled by the love that they had for that person. That's the kind of mourning that Christ is talking about. This is the mourning of someone in whose heart the love of God has been shed abroad. Because congregation, and the Spirit of God makes us a new creature in Christ. The love of God is shed abroad in the heart. From that moment, we begin to love God. And because the believer loves God, that's what makes sin so ugly. That's what makes sin so vile. We heard that out of the mouth of David, Psalm 51. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Can you relate to that congregation? Can you relate to this? Because remember, 
If you cannot relate to this spiritual morning, you're not a Christian, no matter what you may think or anybody else may tell you. This is a foundational mark of spiritual life. Now, as we will see, it is not only mourning. It is a mourning that results in comfort. We will see that later. But that mourning is real. This is the mourning of an established believer. This is the mourning of David, the man after God's own heart, who served him from his youth. Here is a man who is mourning deeply because of the sin he has committed. And he realizes he's not just mourning over the consequences of his sin. The sword would not depart from his house. No, he is weeping over the nature of it against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And so there you have it again, just like with the first beatitude. And it will be highlighted next week is that a believer, a child of God, sees himself the way God sees him. That makes the difference, congregation. We may be convicted of sin. We may be alarmed by sin. We may fear the consequences of sin, but we will never see the nature of sin until the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And then sin becomes so vile and it becomes so ugly. Why? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. That's why throughout their entire lifetime, believers will continue to mourn and grieve over that wretched reality that will be with us until our last breath. Psalm 38 verse 18. Again, this is the confession of one of those mourners in Zion. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Ah, you see, what grace does, grace makes us honest. Makes us honest before God. Grace made David honest. Think of that for a moment. Here he sits on the throne of Israel. Here comes Nathan the prophet. He says, you are the man. He did not kill him, no. An other king would have killed this man on the spot. He said, how dare you? But David bowed his head, and he acknowledged his sin. There we see the grace of God. A man who had been miserable for at least nine months. Just read Psalm 32. But here it breaks. He declares his iniquity. In Ezekiel 20, verse 43, we read, Ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. In Lord's Day uh, 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism, in that question that asks, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? It remarkably answers, for those who loathe themselves. That's a Christian. A Christian loathes himself all of his life, loathes himself for who he is and remains in himself. Because the Christian, the believer, is someone who grieves over the nature of sin rather than its consequences. This is again expressed beautifully in Jeremiah 3.25. Turn there with me. That's a remarkable verse. The last verse of Jeremiah 3. Let's read it together. This is the confession of a mourner in Zion. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord, our God. See, they were very aware of the fact of that special relationship. And that's why... When God's children may grow spiritually and may be assured of their salvation, that's what makes sin even more painful for them to realize. I am sinning. I have sinned against the God of my life. We have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. That's why I said... This is not just something that marks the beginning of spiritual life. And one of the evidences of that new life 
is that that mourning over sin begins. Sin becomes But this is a lifelong experience for the believer. Just listen to Romans 7. Read Romans 7, the second half. There you have the confession of a mourner in Zion. There we are listening to the Apostle Paul, who is distraught over the fact that when he wants to do right, he does evil. When he does, when... And so he finds himself doing the exact opposite of what he desires to do. That even in his holiest moments, he says, evil is present with me. There is a mourner in Zion who finally throws up his hands and say, Oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But of course, the second half is equally true, and we will get there in a moment. That's why Christ became increasingly precious to Paul. Because one moment he complains, what a wretched man he is, I am. Not what I was, but I am, I continue to be. But I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the comfort we will speak of in a moment. So Arthur Pink comments in his commentary on the Beatitudes, he says, the closer the Christian lives to God, the more he will mourn over all that dishonors God. One aspect of spiritual growth is a heightened sensitivity towards sin. That's exactly the work of the Spirit to make us so sensitive to sin. So let me mention a few of the things that believers mourn about their entire lifetime. Well, first of all, of course, there is, there is actual transgression. When I'm painfully aware, because we're not always aware of sinning, but when we are painfully aware that we have either thought something or said something or done something, which is a clear violation of the Word of God. What a grievous thing that can be. And how the devil can then jump on our shoulders and say, do you think you're a Christian? Do you think Christians would do that? Do you think a real Christian would think something like that? Do you think a real Christian would say something like that or do something like that? Oh, how true believers, how they can mourn deeply and over actual transgression. That's the difference, you see. The hypocrite, the hypocrite doesn't worry for one moment about any sin that no one else sees. He only cares about what people think of him. But not so with a true believer. Another reason they mourn is that, that indwelling corruption, that foul fountain that keeps bubbling our entire time. And that's so real to the true believer. And so when the believer deals with that indwelling corruption, when they, when they have these sinful thoughts, these sinful desires, these sinful inclinations that no one else knows about except God, they weep over that, they grieve over that as much as over actual transgression. Why is that? Because God is real to the believer. The believer lives in Corandeo. The believer lives in the presence of God. And so even when we are alone, when sinful desires surface, for the true believer, it is as if they committed the very act at that moment. They mourn over that. They grieve over that. Again, Psalm 38. I am troubled, David says. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease. There is no soundness in my flesh. True believers mourn over their lack of conformity to Christ. We understand that we are called to be conformed to Him, that our calling as a Christian is to be Christ-like. And it can, be a, it can be a matter of mourning and grieving for the Christian when we find so little in ourselves 
that is Christ-like. I mentioned Romans 7. Listen, listen to what Paul says. To will is present with me. It's my desire to honor God. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, then I do. Do you recognize that? Oh, believers will mourn over coldness of heart. When our heart can at times be so cold, so unresponsive. And the reason it grieves the believer, because even though his heart feels cold, it isn't. But it feels cold. It's only a living soul that will grieve over that. And why is it again? Because the believer loves God. And his desire is to have a tender heart towards God, a tender heart towards His Word, a tender heart towards His institutions. And then that sin that so easily besets us, that sin of unbelief that haunts us all the time, that sin of unbelief whereby we discredit God, we discredit His Word, we discredit His love, we discredit His promises. Oh, that grievous sin of unbelief from which we need to be delivered time and again. And then when God hides His countenance, when God seems far, when God seems distant from us, as Jeremiah expressed in Lamentation 1 verse 16, the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. These are all the things that are cause for mourning, that spiritual mourning, Christ says, blessed, blessed are those that mourn in that way. Blessed are they. Because you see, it is that awareness that brings me time and again to an end in myself. It is that painful awareness that makes me realize over and over again that I need Christ. I need Him over and over again. It is that awareness that makes me hunger and thirst, that makes me yearn after Him and His righteousness. It is that awareness that makes the Lord Jesus Christ so precious and so lovely. Ah, you see, the spiritual mourner is so well pleased with Christ. Why? Because they are so displeased with themselves. And so here you see it, congregation. That this exercise of faith, this hungering and thirsting after Christ, this taking refuge to Him, this coming to Him, doesn't just come out of nowhere. I don't in any way want to preach conditional grace. But I do want to emphasize what Christ is emphasizing. I fear there are so many today who claim to be believers in Christ who are ignorant of this. As I said last week, a true believer, they know why they need Christ. They know why they are pleased with Christ. They know why Christ is precious to them. Because that comes out of this disposition which the Holy Spirit creates. The moment of regeneration, this is the kind of person He creates who is poor in spirit, who, is mourn, who mourns, who is meek, and who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And so this spiritual mourning, you see, wrought by the Holy Spirit, is what fuels genuine spiritual growth. Why? Why? Because you see, deeper discoveries of self will lead to deeper discoveries of Christ. Then the beautiful, the beautiful counterpart of this text is that mourners in Zion do not always mourn, for they shall be comforted. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. So that brings us to our last thought, the comfort that is promised to these mourners. 
It's interesting that the word comfort, the verb comfort, is related to the word comforter. They both are derived from the same root word. So in other words, this immediately directs us to one who administers that comfort. Who is the one that comforts the mourner in Zion? Well, it's that spirit who has quickened them, that spirit who has enlightened the believer, the the spirit who has confronted them with their spiritual bankruptcy, the spirit who works that mourning, that genuine spiritual mourning in the heart of the believer. Because his goal is not to leave us there. His goal is not to leave us hanging. But his goal is to lead us to the only place where comfort is to be found, namely in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his great work as the comforter. It's a beautiful word. In the, in the Greek culture, a paraclete was someone who would come and sit next to you and would put his arm around you affectionately and then whisper into your ears to encourage your grief and your mourning. This is exactly what the Spirit of God delights to do. Oh, it is that blessed Holy Spirit of whom we have spoken recently. That blessed Spirit who in the divine trinity is the bond of love that unites the Father and the Son. That Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That Holy Spirit who as the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of the Father will comfort us by leading us to the Son, in whom alone we can find the solution for our poor, needy, guilty soul. But He is also the Spirit of the Son who will lead us to the Father. Ah, that's His work, you see. His work is to lead us to the Son for reconciliation and then lead us to the Father for communion and fellowship. In other words, the Holy Spirit's work in emptying us, in convicting us of our sin, is in order to make room for the enjoyment of salvation that is to be found in Christ. And so the Spirit who does the one will always do the other. The Spirit who causes us to mourn will also be the Spirit who will comfort us through the gospel Oh, this is the Spirit of whom we have spoken recently, from John 16. Howbeit when He, Christ says, the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. The truth about God, the truth about yourself. And that's what makes you realize how poor and bankrupt you are. That truth that will cause you to mourn and grieve over your sin and over your indwelling corruption, but also the truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and he will show it unto you. And that's why you see this disposition of the heart, this being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek, is so essential, because only in that heart is there room for this Christ. Only that heart will hunger and thirst after this precious Christ and after His righteousness. Only such a heart will delight in that Savior and will see in Him exactly the Savior that we need. And that's what we mean by the expression. I've said it before. The Spirit makes room for Christ. And He continues to make room for Christ over and over again. Because in every exercise of faith throughout the life of the believer, what brings us again to Christ, what brings us again to His blessed feet, what makes us look to Him again, it's a renewed recognition how poor I am, how grievous my sin is, how I have offended God, and that by renewal, brings me to the Savior, by renewal leads me to Him, by renewal makes me hunger and thirst after His righteousness, and makes Him the altogether lovely one. And so that comfort that the text speaks of 
That comfort is to be found in Christ. And the mark of a true believer is that Christ alone can only truly comfort us. Once we have experienced that comfort that is to be found in Christ, we will never be able to find satisfaction again unless by renewal we experience that comfort. And that's what the Spirit will do. He never does a half a work. He never leaves us hanging spiritually. But He does the one in order to do the other. He will convict us of our sins in order to lead us to Christ time and time again. Turn with me to Isaiah 61, the opening verses, that famous passage that Christ quoted in Luke 4, which beautifully summarizes what we've been saying. Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord has anointed me. My dear Christ, that means anointed one, to bind up, there you have it, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So when the believer, when he grieves or he, he or she grieves over actual sin, how does the Spirit comfort? By bringing to mind those precious words, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When a believer grieves over indwelling corruption, the Spirit directs our attention that a fountain has been opened in Christ against all sin and against all uncleanness, filled with the blood of Emmanuel that cleanses from all sin. And the believer grieves over his lack of conformity to Christ, of how short he comes or her, she comes in his or her Christian walk. The Spirit directs us to the blessed truth that we are accepted in the Beloved. Even though we come so short in ourselves, He comforts us to know that nevertheless, God views us in Christ. We are accepted in the Beloved. And the believer grieves over unbelief, that sin that so easily besets us. The Spirit comes and comforts us and says, though you, will, you are unfaithful, He abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And the believer grieves over the hiding of God's countenance. The Spirit comes in comforts. And he said, how can I forget thee? A woman, a woman may forget her nursing child, but I cannot and I will not forget thee. Ah, you see, the comfort of the Spirit is always a perfect match. It always matches our need. It always matches the need that He Himself creates. And so that God's precious Word becomes a perfect fit for my soul. He comforts. And so it is not God's normal way to keep His people in darkness most of the time. God wants His children to experience the joy of His salvation. That Spirit wants God's children, wants the believer to grasp the fullness of the gospel, to grasp who this precious Christ is, to grasp who He is and what He has accomplished, and to find our spiritual joy in Him. And in that sense, that comforter is jealous of His work. That means he will also take away all false comforts, all the things that we lean upon that cannot really comfort us. And so if we secretly, if we, if we are comforted by our tears, he'll take our tears away. If we are comforted by our emotions, he will take our emotions away. If we seek to be comforted in our conversion, he will knock the feet from under it because 
He wants to comfort us with Christ. His work is to glorify Him. His work is to make sure that we rest in Christ and in Christ alone. And so spiritual mourning and spiritual comfort are inseparably connected. Isaiah 51 verse 3, The Lord shall comfort Zion, joy and gladness shall be found. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Mourning on the one hand about who I am and remain in myself, but rejoicing in who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished. Oh, it's a certainty. They shall be comforted. It's interesting that even that present tense has the idea of continual action. So we could say, blessed are they who continually mourn, for they shall continually be comforted. Those, we, we cannot separate this two. Those are two sides of one coin. And of course, it contains in it a promise for the future. Ultimately, this will be fulfilled perfectly. Ultimately, the day is coming. That you will be delivered, dear believer. You will be delivered from the body of this death. The day is coming that you will mourn no more. The day is coming that all of your sorrow and all of your grieving will end. Isaiah 35 verse 10. Beautiful words. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The day is coming that Christ himself will wipe away all your tears. The day is coming that you will never mourn again. The day is coming that you will forever bask in the love of this Christ. This Christ, who increasingly becomes our all and in all, because the Spirit keeps shedding light on who we are in ourselves in order to shed light upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make Him increasingly precious. That's why I said last week, and I say it again, Christ is saying, those who belong to my kingdom, they know why they love me. They know why they desire me. They know why they need me. And as I have reassured you numerous times, I am not suggesting that your conversion story has to match a standard paradigm established by men. But this is Christ's paradigm. This is true for all believers. No matter what our story may be, no matter what our circumstances may be, all believers have this in common. Because when we are made a new creature in Christ, this is who we become. All seven of these marks begin to function simultaneously in the believer. So I ask you what I asked you last week, and I'll ask you again. Do you recognize yourself in this point? Can you relate to this? Because if you do not recognize yourself in this portrait, then your claim to being a Christian is presumptuous. It's not real. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to recognize that. It needs to be said. We are called to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. And this is the best place in all of Scripture to examine yourself in the presence of God. Can you relate to this? Has this become experientially real to you? Because if it's not, then you are still spiritually dead. And the curse of God's law still rests upon you because the opposite is always implied. When Christ makes a positive statement, he implies the negative. And so if they, if they who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, and who hunger and thirst after righteousness, if they are called blessed, 
And cursed are those who are still strangers of this, who are still spiritually dead, whose heart is still unrenewed. But thanks be to God that this Christ, even if you do not know him yet, even if you have to conclude honestly and painfully, this is something I cannot relate to. And this Christ beckons you to come to him. And this Christ says, come to me. Come to me with your hard heart. Come to me with your unrepentant heart. Come to me as you are. And I will in no wise cast you out. Because ultimately, in the end, God will judge us by what we think of his son. God will judge us by whether we love his son and whether his son has become precious to us. Paul pronounces an anathema on all those that do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, do you love this Savior? Do you hunger and thirst after him and his righteousness? Amen. Gracious God, bless thy own word. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that thou hast given us this remarkable spiritual portrait of thy children, the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, we pray that this would encourage those that love and fear thee, those among us who painfully recognize their own spiritual poverty, who grieve over that poverty, who humble themselves before thee, and who seek for their salvation outside of themselves in this altogether precious and lovely Savior and his righteousness. Lord, continue to strengthen that faith in him. Oh, blessed Holy Spirit, continue to expose who we are in and of ourselves in order that there will be room in our hearts for that comfort which thou art pleased to minister to hungry and thirsty souls. Remember us with our families. Gather with us again in this evening hour. Pardon our sins, both in speaking and hearing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>